It's the end of the world as we know it, but I'm feeling fine. Now, how can that be true? You always hear people scared to death about the end of days. But the Bible says that we can have hope today when we know what happens tomorrow. We can have comfort. We can have peace. We can know that God is truly in control of, of nations and histories. That time is headed in a direction and God has a final plan. In fact, all through the Bible, God reveals himself as a fire. He, he appears to, to Moses in the burning bush and says, I have seen the tears of my people. Trust me. He comes to Elijah. You remember the chariot of fire? Do you remember the covenant he made with Abraham when he was the stove moving in and out of the covenant sacrifice with Abram? He's the pillar of fire. Whenever the people need to know where to go, God led them. He led them during the day as a pillar of cloud, and he led them at night as a pillar of fire. God wanted them to trust him, to follow him, to know where to head. And there he was, the pillar of fire. Wherever they, wherever they saw the pillar, they knew that's where God was. He calls himself a consuming fire. Because in this pillar was everything they needed. His justice, his faithfulness, his power, his direction. When the pillar moved, they moved. When the pillar stopped, they stopped. But to be near the fire was to be near the very presence of God. Well, that consuming fire, the purity of God, the beauty of his holiness is going to boil over at the end of time. Because God has been waiting. He's been saying, not yet. I'm not going to take care of suffering and evil yet. But soon, at the end of time, the, the wickedness of mankind, the evil, the patience of God finally begins to wear out as he says all those prayers of all those folks saying, what about the evil God? When are you going to do something about this? And the injustice of the world begins to boil over. And God says at that moment, as it all begins to boil over, he has a promise that you and I can hold on to. And here's what that promise is. In Isaiah chapter 43, God said that he is taking care of the ultimate fire of our lives. And if we allow him to wash us, to cleanse us by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, then we, we can handle fire, it says, and will not be burned. He's talking about the ultimate fire that can burn our souls. You see, when Jesus defeated death, he defeated the final fire of destruction so that we could trust in God. Trust in God, no matter what we would face. Because the worst the world could do to us would be to kill us. And we know for sure we have a, a resurrection and life in Jesus Christ. He is the one who is our strength. He's the one who is our comfort. He is our purifying fire. And in that fire, it was in those moments when we came to have him wash us clean as our sacrifice that his fire purified us. That God now sees us with the righteousness of Christ, fully purified and untouched by the fire of the world. Hey, who's that young guy with all the hair that was doing science experiments? And the 10 years have not been kind to me. Anyway, today we're looking at fast track promises and the metaphor of fire will be a, a significant one as God teaches his people how to follow him in a pillar of fire as they exit or exodus out of Egyptian bondage. Now, as we look at this idea today, the Old Testament or Jesus's Bible can be very, very intimidating. It's seemingly very complex. 
So I want to give you one picture that summarizes the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi to have in our heads as we continue to make our way through the Older Testament. So the family portrait is where it begins. Let me show you the family portrait. These are the four major characters that begin the Bible. Abraham, of course he's got a beard, who has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, one named Jacob, that we talked about as a wrestler, because his new name Israel means to wrestle with God. He has 12 sons, and one of those sons' name is Joseph, who's got a technicolor dream coat I hear. We're going to talk about him today. Now, as we walk through the Bible, here's the entire Old Testament in one graphic. We start with the family portrait of Abraham, then Isaac, uh, then Jacob, and then Joseph. And then we're going to walk through the entire Bible over the next five weeks together. And this is going to be a summary of the entire thing. And my hope is, as you dig into the Bible, it's going to be less intimidating. You're going to understand the main point of it, God's heart for you in it, and how God likes to work with people who are broken and make mistakes like you and I. In fact, you ever felt like a failure? (laughs) I mean, I know I do. It's a lot easier to relate to people who make mistakes than those who get everything right. About six months ago during the summer, my daughter wanted to buy a hot tub. She only had a couple hundred bucks. So we've had a hot tub growing up, but she's now married and uh, just really thought it would be great to have a hot tub to tell stories like we used to as a kid. So I took her out, she and her husband, and we found this used hot tub at like a Craigslist type offering. And I checked it out as best I could, but they had the electricity unhooked. And I said, honey, I, I think it's got a good chance of working. So we haul it home. We bring it to her house. We push it in the back. I helped her husband learn how to run the electrical. We get all the electrical run out there. We plug it in, and sure enough, it doesn't work. My daughter's disappointed. I'm disappointed. So I threw every idea I had at trying to fix this thing. Bought different parts, tried wiring around it, checked some things. The short version is it took about four or five months, and that thing just sat there. And I felt like a failure as a dad. Now, why? Because I really wanted this to be a treasure that she and her husband could enjoy. And I felt like, hey, it's not my responsibility, but man, just knowing that thing was sitting there under my advice that I had given them really made me feel bad. So I called up a friend at the church and I said, hey, do you know anybody who maybe has had a hot tub for a long time who doesn't use it anymore? He said, let me check. So it's coming to around Christmas time. He calls me up. He says, yeah, it, you'd have to move it. I'm like, I'll figure out how to move it. So we called up this kind of friend of a friend who had a hot tub. So my daughter's husband and I sneak over there with a few friends from our small group. And, well, we don't sneak over there. He invited us. We, we take the hot tub out. But while my daughter's at work, we sneak the new hot tub, new used hot tub, into the backyard. We haul the old hot tub out. We put the new hot tub in, wired up. Sure enough, it's working. And we are pumped. And so we cover it with a tarp. And my, my uh, son-in-law tells my daughter that he's going to cover the old broken hot tub with a tarp for the for the winter well now it's really going to be a surprise that thing's heating up it's getting ready and so sure enough a few weeks later he surprises her in fact he sent us a videotape of it 
She's like, why are we going outside? It's cold. It's December. He's like, no, I got a surprise for you. She yanks back the tarp, and sure enough, it's not just her old hot tub working. It's a brand new, much nicer hot tub fully functioning there in the backyard. And it was just so awesome to be part of redemption, right? My, my mistakes were in front of me. I had failed. I'd given bad advice. It didn't work out. But now there was redemption, which I felt like I was redeemed of my mistakes. That's the idea of redemption is that we failed, we made mistakes, and yet a father came and redeemed us or bought us out of that or, or took what was broken and didn't work out of our life and gave us something better that does work forgiveness and joy in eternal life. So that's the theme we're looking at in the Old Testament is the idea that God brings redemption to us. He takes that which is broken, that which is a failing in our life and replaces it with something that works. In fact, the major theme of the Bible we've looked at so far is that uh, God gives us promises to keep us on track. But the greatest promise is that he works with people who are very, very much off track. So today again, we're going to look at four characters who are off track from God and how God gives each one of them a promise they can use in their life so that you and I can not only understand the Bible, but hold on to a promise God might have for us when we feel like maybe we're not going the right way. So let's look at our first character together. Our first character's name is Joseph. And Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, otherwise known as Israel. And the one thing he's most famous for is his technicolor dream coat, or his coat of many colors. Now he gets this coat from his dad, and it's a beautiful colored coat that really represents his father Jacob or Israel's favoritism toward him over his other 11 brothers. As you can imagine, that doesn't go over real well. In fact, the key word for Joseph is Joseph brags. Early in his life, he's young, he's taking his coat, showing his brothers, look at me, dad loves me best, I'm number one. Telling people how important he is. So this is the thing that Joseph does. And when he's focused on bragging on himself, he gets in a lot of trouble. And his tyrannical 11 brothers really cause him some problems. They actually sell him off to Egypt, which is how all of the Israelites end up in Egypt because his bragging and his brother's tyranny leads to an opportunity for God to use even their evil doing to move them to Egypt. So Joseph brags. Now, a little bit about Joseph. His life is a yo-yo. He's going to go from bragging in a dream to his brothers to being thrown into a pit God uses that opportunity, even though he's moved to Egypt. He ends up serving an Egyptian named Potiphar, even as a slave. The Lord is with him. He's very, very successful. He gets falsely accused of attacking his master's wife, which he didn't do. Gets thrown into prison. So pit, Potiphar, prison. In prison, God is with him. He's very, very successful. And two guys from the the royal palace of Pharaoh get thrown into prison. The baker and the taster. The baker and the taster are in prison with him and they talk about a dream they've had. God allows Joseph to interpret that dream. They go back to Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh's like, wow, pretty good. He has a dream later in life, needs an interpreter. They'd forgotten about Joseph in prison. It's been about 14 years now. And Pharaoh says, somebody needs to interpret my dream. So they call Joseph up. And he is now elevated to second in command to the Pharaoh to lead this gigantic national food process involving seven years of feast and seven years of famine to prepare the entire nation for famine to come. But one of the themes you see in Joseph's life is that the Lord is with him. When he brags, regardless of his circumstances, God is with him. Now he ends up at Potiphar's, like I mentioned, and his master saw that the Lord was with him. Even in slavery, even in a foreign land, God was with him. So everything he touched, the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So he ends up in prison because of that false accusation. The same thing the prison guard noticed, that the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. And after interpreting those dreams, he ends up, sure enough, with Pharaoh. The Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. That guy can interpret my dream? They brought him quickly out of the dungeon. I had a dream, the Pharaoh says, and there's no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said that you can interpret it. Now look what Joseph says. This is his big moment to get out. He answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So even in his moment, he doesn't take credit for himself, but says, God's the secret to my success. Which is really strange. You got this this, uh, kid in prison saying, hey, God's the secret to my success, O Pharaoh, who's in charge of the world. Now, in the middle of all of that, Joseph will eventually see that famine spread back to his homeland where his brothers are. Now, his brothers have told his dad that he's dead. And dad has mourned. It's been many, many years. His brothers think he's dead, but they're starving. So they sneak back to Egypt to ask for food. And Joseph reveals himself, I am the brother you sold. (gasps) And they're like, he's going to kill us the same way we mistreated him by selling him off so many years ago. And Joseph has this incredible promise he offers to forgive his brothers who'd been so cruel to him. And the secret in this promise is a secret for you and I to overcome bitterness in our life. Look what he says. This is so powerful. Do not be afraid, Joseph says to his brothers. Am I in the place of God? God judges people, not me. I'm not in God's place. But as for you, you meant evil against me. Let's call it what it is. But God meant it for good in order to bring about the saving of people's lives. See, this is the promise. We won't forgive other people until we know our place. When we take ourselves out of the place of God. God, you're in charge of revenge. You're in charge of judgment. I want to be free. And that's one of the most powerful things actually about forgiveness. It's a gift you give to yourself. It's I'm no longer going to play God and keep track of who deserves what, how many lightning bolts. But when you know your place, I'm not God, he's God, you're able to finally find freedom. Like the story of Pascal. Pascal was a woman, she got married in 2007, but she brought a lot of baggage from growing up with a mom and dad who were both professionals and doctors, but her mother was a rageaholic. 
From very early age, mom would scream at her, throw dishes at her. Her dad tried to step in the way, but he just felt the full brunt of her attack as well. As she got older as a teenager, she found that she and her friends were always on the receiving end of mom's criticism. She criticized grades. She criticized clothes. You can never do anything right. When she got married later in life and had the first granddaughter, she hoped her mother would soften. She didn't. And her daughter, or granddaughter of her mother, had a a strong will and uh, was very spirited. And it just brought out even more rage from Grandma. Well, Pascal decides to move across the country. She's just not going to put up with this anymore. She's tired of all the drama and the way her mom has just eaten away all those years of her life. But around 73 years old, her mother has a series of strokes. And there's no one else left in the family to take care of her. So she gets the phone call and comes to the hospital bed. Angry from all those years of pain. Angry from all that destruction she put in her life. Even ticked off, I have to be here now to clean up this mess. But as she saw her mom frail, laying in that hospital bed, she began to humanize her mom. Her mom couldn't speak, and so her mom couldn't criticize her. Could barely even respond. For the next few weeks, she began to read her mother books. Just read the book. Day after day and week after week, something began to soften in her. She saw her mom continuing to deteriorate. That anger, that bitterness began to soften. And one day she began to weep, seeing her mother dying in front of her. In fact, her face fell into her hands, which fell into her mother's lap. As she finished crying, she realized she wasn't angry anymore. She'd forgiven her mother. She'd been carrying this bitterness for so long, she didn't even realize how much it weighed her down. In fact, she decided to go ahead and forgive her ex-husband from a divorce a few years ago because of the freedom that came from not carrying bitterness. See, that's what Joseph found. He had the right to be mad, but God was with him. And God showed him that the gift of forgiveness, when you're not in the place of God and keep trying to keep track of what everybody's done wrong, it's a gift you give to yourself. And it comes when you put God in his place and put yourself in the proper place. So that's Joseph. Well, the family's so excited, they all move to Egypt. And now all of Israel's descendants are living in Egypt, which moves us to our second character. Our second character is Egypt. Because now, after several generations of all of Jacob's sons living in Egypt, under Joseph's second command rule, all of a sudden, uh, Joseph dies. And the Pharaoh that knew Joseph died. And now, they find themselves in Egypt. And for 400 years, they're going to be in bondage to Egypt. I mean, they are trapped. In fact, they continue to have children. There's now thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of Israelites living in Egypt. And now they're crying out to God to exit them, to make a way out, or to exit them from Egypt. However, God provides a way for his people to get free through a guy named Moses we'll talk about in just a moment. However, Egypt refuses. They refuse to talk. They refuse to respond. God does a series of miracles all aimed at the different Egyptian gods, the frog god, the flea god, the pharaoh himself god. 
And rather than delivering God's people like God wanted, Israel refuses, and God, through a series of plagues, continues to come at Egypt to say, let my people go. Now, what began this process was that the Pharaoh tried to kill off all of the newborn children in Israel to keep the population down, throwing them into the Nile, killing the firstborn. On the final day of the 10 plagues, there is a plague where they, Egypt, who had taken the firstborn, will lose their firstborn unless they partake of God's forgiveness. Now, this is what we know as the Passover feast. God says, you've done wrong stuff. You've refused me. You've betrayed me. You've killed people. And you're going to get the just consequences of what you've done unless you take the perfect land I've provided This lamb will die for you. You put its blood on your doorposts so that my judgment will pass over you. Thus the name Passover. And that's the promise from God. No matter what we've done or how bad we've rebelled, no matter how much we've refused God over the years, God makes a way for both Egyptians and Hebrews to have their sins forgiven and allow God's judgment to pass over us. And that's our promise. Guilt and shame can pass over me. He says to the Israelites, and it shall be that when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, this Passover service we're celebrating years later? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt. And when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our household. The promise of God is he will pass over us. Now that brings us to our third character. Our third character is Moses. And that's the character God uses to deliver the people from Egypt. He was born into the Hebrews who were in bondage under Egypt. And while the Egyptians were trying to kill off all the firstborn, Moses was spared. His sister and his mom put little Moses into a little basket and floated down the Nile where one of the Pharaoh's daughters picks him up and adopts him into their family, where he will be raised for 40 years as an Egyptian, trained in leadership, trained in everything you'd need to know to be successful in life in the most powerful nation in history. However, at 40 years old, he notices one of his fellow Hebrews being tortured by one of the Egyptian slave masters. He gets angry. He doesn't handle it right, and he kills off the Egyptian. Now Moses loses his temper, he loses his position, and he's now on the run. He runs to the backside of the desert where he hides out for 40 years. At the end of those 40 years, thinking he's lost his opportunity to make a difference, God appears to him in a burning bush. And here in this burning bush, it says, the word of the Lord appeared to him. Now, the word of the Lord isn't just spoke to him, it appeared to him that there's someone there in the bush. This is what theologians call a uh, Old Testament appearing of Jesus. Jesus is in that bush, and Jesus says to him, I have seen the affliction of my people for 400 years, and I have heard their cry. And I want you to know that I want you to go and follow my leading to go back into Egypt to lead my people into freedom. 
And Moses scared, but he goes. But his life in general is a summary of him losing. He loses his temper, he loses his way, and ultimately because of his struggle with his temper in particular, he loses the opportunity to go into the promised land that he has been leading people toward. Quick summary of Moses. First, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh orders the killing of all the firstborn. Moses is born at three months. His mother puts him in the basket by the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses. He's raised as an Egyptian. The Israelites are crying out, God, are we ever going to have a deliverer from Egypt? The angel of Yahweh, Jesus in the Old Testament, appears in a burning bush to Moses. God then sends a series of plagues onto Egypt, but Egypt refuses to listen. The Israelites then leave Egypt at the Passover that breaks the Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh pursues the Israelites. The Israelites cross the Red Sea in a supernatural deliverance from God. Moses sends Israelites into this new land to spy it out. And they have a big vote and say, we can't do it. God's not big enough. He took on Egypt, but he can't take on the giants or the fortified cities in the new land. God then appoints Joshua to succeed him. And in between there, he'll give him the Ten Commandments, teach him how to build a tabernacle. But the main theme we see in Moses' life is his struggle with anger. He's striking rocks. He's getting ticked off. He's like, God, I'm just sick of it all. And I can relate to that. I lose my patience. I lose my temper. I lose opportunities because of inner problems in my own character. And yet God has a promise for Moses. So let's look at that promise together. He gives Moses a promise. And the promise is despite the fact you've lost your temper, despite the opportunity that you guys have lost your way, I want you to know that I see and I hear. I hear your struggles. I hear your challenges. And I want you to tell the people that God sees and God hears our sorrow. Maybe that's something you need to hear today. That you have felt like, I've been praying. I don't know if prayer works. I don't know if there's a God who really listens to prayer. But I don't feel like he's listening. And it's been years, months of me praying about this. Yet the promise in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 is the angel of the Lord, Jesus in the Old Testament, appears to Moses and says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. When you feel like God hasn't seen the pain you've been in or hasn't heard the cries of your heart, this is a promise to hold on to. It may not be going the way you want or hasn't come at the timing you want, but God wants to bring about deliverance. He wants to deliver you and I from worry, from bitterness, and from the entanglements we've got ourselves into. Do you remember, I think it was a couple years ago, the story in Thailand? There was a group of soccer players, 12 of them and their coach, who decided to celebrate a big win by going into a cave. So they go and they park their bikes and they head into a cave. However, they forgot it was monsoon season and didn't realize it was going to hit that afternoon. They're about a quarter mile, half mile, a full mile into the cave when the water floods come down. The water fills up the cave and begins to chase them, block the exit, and chase them deeper and deeper into the cave. 
in order to not be taken over by the water, they end up three miles deep in this intricate cave system. Their parents found out none of the kids came home. They find the bicycles outside the cave system. And an international rescue plan is underway. In fact, they end up getting Navy divers from from Thailand, from, from England, from America, all to come to this place, and they think the kids are dead. It's been four days, five days, a week. These divers who've trained their entire life said there's never been more difficult diving than the diving in this location. They don't even know if the kids are alive. They have to take off their tanks to sneak through crevices as they make it one, two, three miles into the cave. After multiple days, one of the divers comes up and he sees the kids in the cave, huddled, dark, scared, trying to share the little bit of food they have. He radios back, we found him, we found him. But it will take till day 15 to find a way to get them out. In fact, one of the divers came out of retirement to try and rescue these kids. He will be unconscious during the process of one of the cave rescues and he ends up dying. A Navy SEAL dies trying to rescue these kids. Well, finally, on day 15, they get a report that the weather tsunami is coming in. It's going to last for four more months, but it's going to be so bad that as much as they're pumping the water out, they will not be able to keep the water from filling up this final cave. They decide the only way to get the kids out is to medicate them so they're calm and to put them in scuba gear they've never worn and to escort them three miles through pitch black water, through cave systems we have to crawl their body and push their body through holes this big. And sure enough, on day 15, these divers going and rescued a group of people in darkness, in hopelessness, who felt like they were going to die, there was no way out, no one cared, and there was no way they could escape. And yet, one Navy SEAL gave his life for them, and the others went through incredible danger to say, we hear your cry, we see you when you think no one else sees you. And there was incredible celebration. As everyone was gathered around, the international cameras were there as lights began to appear in that waterway, that puddle just outside the cave. And all of a sudden the first children came out and every single one of them was rescued that day, including their coach. But someone had to die and someone had to go find And someone had to put their life on the line to bring about the exodus from the darkness. And that's what God does for you and I. Jesus came to die for us despite the fact we lose our our tempers, despite the fact we lose our way, despite the fact that we, we, we lose our ability to trust in him and we think he's given up on us. He sees us and he hears us and he rescues us. Which brings us to our fourth character. And this is the man who will succeed Moses. This is a friend of Moses. He's one of those original 12 spies that would spy out the land to look for those obstacles. And then 40 years of his life will be wasted. And yet he will ultimately be the successor that brings God's people into the promised land. His name is Joshua. And Joshua is overwhelmed with the opportunity to fill in Moses' feet. He's overwhelmed by these giant cities, but he's also overwhelmed with the opportunity to do what the previous generation couldn't. You see, when Moses sent in those 12 spies to take control of the land promised 400 years earlier to Abraham, they had seen these gigantic, 
fortified cities. One of them was a place known as Jericho. And it was massive, and it was powerful, and it was evil. They would punish you for even trying to help the poor. They had no morality except selfishness and greed. So after 400 years of patience, God sends Joshua in to take control of the land. Now, 40 years earlier, Moses had led the people. They'd seen these areas, 12 spies, and 12 of them had said, I don't think we can do this. 10 said no, two said go. And the two that said go, let's walk into the land. Let's trust God that every place our foot steps, God will give it to us, was a man named Joshua. However, because 10 people outvoted the two people, because of the size of the cities, God, because of 40 days of their spying out the land, tells that generation they need to wander for 40 years. 40 years they would wander. 40 years, Joshua had said, let's go, I'm ready. So had his buddy Caleb. But because of the other 10, 40 years of his life wasted, wandering through a desert. How do you feel when people waste your time? When people waste minutes, moments, months of your life? Would you be overwhelmed with bitterness or anger if you'd lost 40 years of your life? <laughs> I would. And yet, Joshua, 40 years later, when God brings the people back to the, to the edge of the land under his leadership, he's overwhelmed by the prospect of filling in for Moses. He's overwhelmed by the challenges, but he says, we're gonna trust God with the challenges before us. So let me jump back 40 years. Caleb and Joshua, during this big vote, they've spied out the land. They quieted the people before Moses. Hey guys, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, there's big cities, but let's, let us go up at once. Take possession of the land. We are well able to overcome it with God's power. He took on the Egyptians for crying out loud. But the men who had gone with them gave a bad report. We were like grasshoppers in our own sight and we we're not able to do it because we're so small compared to their warriors. So, in order to conquer Jericho, a character, the angel of the Lord, appears to Joshua. Remember I've mentioned, this is Jesus in the Old Testament. Look at how often he's appearing to different characters. He comes to Joshua and says, I'm not on your side or your enemy's side, I'm on God's side. And I want you to walk around Jericho, cry out, and I will deliver the city. That's exactly what happens. It continues to happen. God provides the victory, and Joshua is no longer overwhelmed. Instead, he's strong and courageous. And that is the promise that God gives Joshua over and over and over again. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you. Here's that promise. God promises courage, whatever we face. Courage, whatever fortified cities we're up against. Have I not commanded you, God says to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In fact, he says, wherever your feet trod, I will give that land to you. So those are our four characters. 
And those are our four promises. Now, our key takeaway here is maybe this week you want to pick a promise. Pick a very specific one that speaks to your circumstances. And maybe for you, you're like Joseph. You have a tendency to be a little braggadocious. And that's led to some consequences in your relationships, business relationships or personal. And maybe you need to pick a promise. Can I trust God whether I'm in the pit, whether I'm at the Pharaoh's place or somewhere in between, I'm going to trust that God is with me. Or maybe that pride and bragging has led to you thinking you're better than other people and you can't forgive them. So maybe the promise you want to pick up is I'm not going to be in the place of God. What you meant for evil, whoever hurt me, God meant for good. Pick a promise to keep you on track or pick a promise if you happen to be off track. Maybe you're like Egypt. You've refused some clear way you know you should have gone. And God says, hey, here's what you deserve, but just like I did with Exodus is what I did with Jesus. I came to die for the consequences of your wrongdoing so that judgment or consequences could pass over you. Maybe that's the promise. You've lived with guilt or shame or the sense of I can never forgive myself. I hate myself for doing that or not doing this. And God says, listen, I paid it all. You can live in freedom, no condemnation and no shame. Or maybe you're like Moses. And the promise you need is despite what you've struggled with, despite what it's felt like, God says, I have seen what you're going through. And I have heard your cries. And I am with you in the midst of it. Or maybe that promise is one of Joshua. You're overwhelmed by the challenges before you in leadership. You're like, I'm not sure what to do or how to get there. And God would say to you, be strong and courageous for I am with you. Don't turn to the left or to the right. I will be with you. But pick a promise. There's a lot more details, right, connecting these stories. Like what happened between Joseph and Moses and Joshua. So one of the resources we're making available is the Fast Track Booklet. You can read this thing in 90 minutes or a couple hours. It's very easy to read. It's got pictures that go along with the pictures we're drawing and a quick summary of the Bible. You can read the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation in a couple hours. I would encourage you to use this as a supplement. This is something we produce as a church and we think it would help you. If you're watching on the app, you can download it uh, directly on the app. If you go to our website, you can download the PDF, read it on your phone, read it on your iPad. Or if you'd like a hard copy, stop by the church office or swing by here on a Sunday. We'll be delighted to give you one. Our goal is to help you have a basic understanding of the summary of the Bible so you feel competent enough and confident enough to dive into a Bible study. I hope today you've been encouraged. I've been encouraged that Horizon is a place that you can come and study the Bible. In fact, we have Bible studies available now. If you want to dive into one, maybe as you're beginning to understand the Bible, you want to go deeper. Maybe you're like, you know what, I'm loving this and you want to forward this message to someone else from the app or from the website and say this was helpful for me. Hopefully it'll be helpful for you. Maybe as we're continuing to be reopened in the new year, you want to help out by serving. Say, I want to serve a place that helps people really understand the Bible. It was so opaque for me growing up. 
Or maybe you're someone who's feeling encouraged to, to give financially. You're saying, wow, if God's the kind of rescuer who comes into a cave to find me, if God's willing to see me and all my challenges, I'm starting to get that. And I want to be as generous to God and his work and creating environments where other people can come to find God and understand the Bible. I want to give of my time. I want to give of my treasure. I want to give of my talents. Whatever it is, I'd ask you to, to pray and say, God, how can I be part of your story Fill me with courage and fill me with strength. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible journey through the Bible. A reminder of all these characters who failed in many ways and yet trusted you to lead them into an exodus to a life of freedom and joy. We ask these things in in Jesus' name. Amen.